Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, as we come to study your word this morning, I pray that you would keep us humble. May we not impose ourselves upon your word, but may your word shape and change us. Pray that your spirit would be at work in us, challenging us, encouraging us, and leading us to our Lord Jesus, our Savior, in whom we find our rest. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as Christians, we would confess that the the Bible is God's breathed out word, in the, um, as 2 Timothy 3 puts it, that all of Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be equipped for every good work. But then we come to passages like, like these in Exodus, chapters 21 through to 23, that we just had a glimpse of there. And I wonder if in your heart you leapt for joy as you heard the reading of God's word and just thought, yes, you know what? It's been a, it's been a rubbish week or it's been a, a hard fought week and I'm here and I'm ready for this to hear about goats in milk. I am ready. Teach me. Or if you're anything like me at first reading of this or hearing this, they you might have had an entirely different reaction. You know, we've had the exciting bit of Exodus. We've had the plagues. We've had the Red Sea. We've had the, the singing. Yes, that is exciting. And then the, 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 the Ten Commandments. Wow! Couldn't God have just stopped there? It seems a little boring, a little bit out of touch to modern life. You know, what possible application could there be in God, from the world today from God's word, from these things that we've been reading in chapter 21, slavery or seemingly harsh payback for wrongs in verse 23, later in 21. You know, I thought Christians were meant to be a forgiving people. And then there's these laws relating to things that, uh, like roadkill and property rights. Uh, oh, just plain out weird stuff, the goats again. You know, what is going on? You know, if you're exploring Christianity, you might be thinking, I knew it. I knew they were a weird bunch. And you would be right in some cases. But um, maybe in your thoughts, you're just thinking, these are obviously ridiculous. And we just need to forget about these pages of Scripture. Sort of like the out-of-touch laws that are still active in the UK today. For example, there's a, there's a statute that says MPs are forget, forbidden sorry, to turning up to Parliament in a suit of armour. Some of the MPs might want to do that, um, but they are forbidden. Or it is, it is legal, it is legal to shoot a Scotsman with a crossbow in York, should you see one, except on a Sunday. Um, <laughs> The Scottish don't get away that easy. There's a subsection that says you can still shoot a Scotsman if they're drunk on a Sunday, um, but not with a bow and arrow. Um, best that Scots just avoid York. Um, or one that I find very difficult, which is that King Henry VIII imposed a beard tax uh, that every man must pay to wear facial hair or shave it off. We would be a poorer household uh, if those ridiculous laws were kept. Ridiculous laws are so obvious out of, uh, obviously out of date. We never speak of them, do we? 
And as we flip through chapters 21, 22, 23, it'd be very easy to think the same thing, wouldn't it? It'd be very easy to, to, say, to get through them as fast as possible until things get a bit more exciting again in God's word or, or just be like, oh, just forget it. It's just not, not applicable to me. But let us remind ourselves again that this is God's word, that this is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and equipping the servant of God so that we are able and equipped for every good work. So must we take these applications given to the Israelites directly into our own lives? Well, no. What we must do with these laws is to go deeper and to understand the principles about what they say about God and how we should live our lives. Uh, The Israelites have been redeemed. They've been brought out of Egypt. God's loved them. He's cared for them. He's given them the Ten Commandments. And he's loved them even more because he said, I'm not going to let you just try and work out those Ten Commandments on your own. But let me give you some, some laws, some case studies about how the Ten Commandments might play out in everyday life of an Israelite. Um, but for us, these, these laws show us that being in relationship with God is not to be confined to a service on a Sunday or a home group on a Wednesday, but that being in relationship with God affects every part of life. And that he has to, something to say about every part of life, from property to cooking, he has something to say. For God wants his redeemed people in all of these things, in all of life, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk faithfully. That's how so Jesus sums it up when, he, when the Pharisees are on about Um, these laws, Jesus says, you missed the point. Act justly, walk faithfully, love mercy. And so that's, uh, that's how we are looking at these laws. With that big point in mind, we are to act justly, we are to love mercy, and we are to walk faithfully in not just some, but all of life. And so let's turn to chapter 21 together, if you've got that open, that'll be useful, and about slavery first up. It, well, if, if God wants his people to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk faithfully, it seems quite a jarring thing to open up chapter 21 and to hear about slavery, doesn't it? But we need to be clear from the start that God does not endorse slavery, particularly slavery as we would understand it. The, the horrible history of the slave trade of people from Africa or the West Indies or other places or the, the vile evil of modern day slavery of the sex trade, of human trafficking and other things. God is, uh, it does in no way endorse slavery. As we see in, ch- in chapter 21, verse 16, have a look down. Anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or still in the kidnapper's pos- uh, possession. Involuntary slavery is forbidden. This slavery is not to be abusive either. Verse, verse 26, an owner who hits his 
male or female slave in the eye and destroys it, must let the slave go free or compensate for the eye or knocking out a tooth. It's the, the same thing, the next verse later. If you mistreat your servant, they walk away or they're compensated. Neither is this uh, service uh, or, or slavery racially motivated. This is in no way what we would class as slavery, but is in fact servanthood. In fact, the very word here in, in Hebrew is closer towards serving rather than slavery. And how could God endorse slavery? For he is the one who redeems his people from slavery. Slavery out of Egypt. He redeems these people from being slaves to sin. God is a God of justice and he would not redeem a people out of slavery just to let them enslave another people. And so what is going on here? Well, like as we've said, we've, we've framed it as more servanthood. And the servanthood was a way of dealing with, with poverty and debt. And it, you know, in the day-to-day mess of life, if somebody found themselves in poverty and debt, they were giving away to, to pay themselves out that debt by, by freely giving of themselves into service of another household. And that was the way of doing with that. It was, it was temporary, verse 2. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years, but on the seventh year, he goes free. It didn't split up families, verse 3. If he comes alone, he goes, then he goes free alone. If he comes with his wife, then she is to go with him. Then you say, oh, well, what about verse 4? That seemingly contradicts that. If the master gives him a wife, then she bears him sons or daughters. The woman and her children shall belong to the master, and only the man shall go free. It seems, it seems like, what, what, what is God doing there? Is he breaking up families there, or, or is there something else going on? Well, this is a law that is protecting the family rather than wanting to split the family up. The husband has come from being in debt. It's a, it's a protection for the wife and for the children so that he uh, can find his way back into uh, a way to earn and, and not get himself back into debt. If they were all go together and he's finding himself in debt, then they would all go into debt, into a household. It's a way of protection for the family. But if he wanted to, if he liked the master, if he, if he liked the work, he could stay with his family and continue his work. And if he does, we get this, this public ear piercing to show his commitment and the covenant to working at that household for his life. Seems a weird thing, isn't it, that you commit to work for somebody and the, and the uh, employer gets you to go to his house and pierces your ear upon his doorframe. It, it seems a slightly weird thing to do, but it, it's a symbolic thing that the piercing the ear of this on the doorframe of the house is saying that he was then going to be permanently joined to that household. It was also saying that when I hear my master's voice, I will obey what he says. It was a sign that anyone seeing that earring would say, that person has chosen to serve. This slavery, as it's put in here, is totally different to anything they experienced in Egypt. It's totally different to what the surrounding nations uh, were looked, looked like in that 
They were servants. They were protected. They had rights. They were set free. They could marry into the family. They were given provisions and shown dignity and value and respect. Rather than cruel slavery, this is more like servanthood, which has the gospel running through its core and frames how we should live life. It's what David has in mind in Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8, where he says, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, Here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is on my heart. David knew uh, that it was... that. What was pleasing to God is more than offering uh, an offering for sin, but lifelong obedience, like that of a servant towards a master he loves. David's uh, public declaration of service to God is then pointing forward to an even greater act of devotion and service. The Lord Jesus himself, who was rich, became poor. He humbled himself and entered this world not to serve, but to submit himself to obedience service. Christ was given a bride, the church. He so loved her. He loved the Father that he allowed himself to be publicly pierced on the frame of the cross not to work off any debt that he owed, but to work off and cancel all the debt of our sin, of our shame, of our guilt. We were once slaves to a harsh and cruel master of sin, but now we have been brought into the household of God to be his servants. Instruments in the hands of the Redeemer to the praise of his glory and grace who poured out his righteous justice his loving mercy, all through the faithfulness of his servant Christ. We are loved by the best master, one who takes care of our needs, pays our debts, and treats us like family, not slaves, gives us dignity, value, and worth. If having a good master caused the people of the Israelites that day to publicly commit themselves to lifelong service, what is our response to the master who loves us so much that he dies for us? Well, we don't all have to go out and get our ears pierced, if that's what you're worried about. But we do commit to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. To live out all of life with God at the forefront of our minds and the center of our affections. To live our lives accordingly to what he says. Not just to turn up on a Sunday or a, or a, or a midweek group, but to act justly, to love mercy and to walk faithfully throughout all of life. Mirroring the God who has rescued us. And like our time in Ephesians, the link here from, from servanthood to us today is our daily work. And so as a, 
as an employee, uh, you are to walk faithfully. To be honest in your work patterns and the things that you have committed to. As an employer, act justly and mercifully towards those who you employ. Don't abuse them or exploit them. Care for them. Be fair with them. If we find ourselves in debt, that we are to do what we can to work to pay off that debt, as Paul says in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness are the underlying themes throughout the rest of these laws. And we, do, we really don't have time to go through uh, all of this, but let me just point out a few things with what time that we have left. Mercy, first of all. God is concerned about the most vulnerable in society, and so he wants his people to be a people of mercy. There's protection for women there, as we read in 21.7. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as a male servant does. If she does, she, uh, if she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. If he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. If, if he marries another woman, he must not be, deprive the first one food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. Although this is quite hard at first reading to get our heads around what is going on here, is, is, uh, you know, what, what is God saying? This, this is an act of mercy from God written in his law. And it is done to protect those who were the most vulnerable in society. You know, think of Ruth and Naomi in the book of Ruth. They are devastated when their husband uh, die, their father dies. Why? Because they had no one to provide for them. And they go back to Bethlehem. Why? Because they want a redeemer. They need somebody to look after them. They need somebody to provide for them. And God writes it here in his law. That a father may give a daughter to another household to give them security of a home to give them security of food, to give, them, uh, to give them dignity and value, comfort, perhaps marriage would come. If, they, if they're married, they're, they're not just treated as a, a second-hand citizen, but they're one of the family. Never looked as a servant again. And even if marriage didn't happen, they were still to be taken care of. And if none of those things could happen, she was to go free. None of this was imprisoning. This is all mercy from God to those who were vulnerable in the society there. There was, an, there was to be an ongoing obligation to care for women. They were not to be discarded. You know, wonderfully, in, in, the, in the age that we live in, um, uh, the teen, teen girls there don't have to worry about their father sending them off to another household or something like that, that, that women can work and, and do all these things, which is wonderful. But the principle and the heart of what God is saying here for us to consider is, who are the vulnerable today? Who are the vulnerable today? For God cares for them. And he does not want us to dis disregard them or discard them as if they are nothing 
but he wants us to show mercy towards them. His mercy continues towards foreigners in chapter 22, verse 21. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. 23, 9. Do not oppress a foreigner, for you yourself knows how it feels to be a foreigner, because you were foreigners in Egypt. The Israelites know what it's like to be foreign, foreigners working in a foreign land. They know how easily rights could be stripped away, abuse and exploitation could happen. God says, remember how it felt to be a foreigner and show mercy towards them. And as Christians, Peter says to us in the first chapter of 1 Peter, he says, you are elect exiles, you are foreigners, strangers. Jesus says that we are of the we are. Uh, we are in the world, but not of the world. We know what it's like to feel like the foreigner when the rest of culture says that something is good and right, and actually we say, no, it isn't. We know what it's like to feel rejected, to, be, to feel like the foreigner, to feel like the stranger. But we also know what it's like to be welcomed in by God. One stranger is now friends of the Most High. This law causes us not only to be compassionate, but better hosts, doesn't it? To increase our hospitality, to move towards people and welcome them as Christ has welcomed us. What about the widows and the fatherless? 22, 22, do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do, And they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. It makes God angry when society abuses or neglects the most vulnerable. And God is unchanging. And so there must be so much in our world today that angers God with the way that the vulnerable are treated. And whilst he will bring his justice to bear on that injustice when he comes again, God expects his people to be ready to care. To be ready to care for those in need because we have received his care when we were in such desperate need. We were fatherless, but he has adopted us as his children. When we were strangers, he welcomed us in. We have received such love of the very ones needing to show it in our very broken world. God has placed us in a vulnerable community. And he calls his church to love those from the broken homes to love the orphaned children, to love the widows, it calls us to love them, to act justly, and to walk faithfully here in Aubrey. This is a, a, a radically different uh, way to live. 
And regardless that we are living in 2024 and not post-Egypt Israel, God still calls his people to be light amongst the nations as a radically merciful people who have been saved by the merciful God. To not disregard the vulnerable, to care for those who are strangers, and to look after those who are widows and the fatherless and the poor. Justice. God uh, wants his people to love uh, mercy, but he also calls us to act justly, 21-23, in this famous passage. If there's a serious injury, you ought to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Firstly, this is not a, a license for revenge. This is guidance of how the law courts would determine punishment in civil cases in Israel. Remember, this is a people that have been redeemed out of Egypt. They're now living as in a community. There's all these hundreds of thousands of people for the very first time. They needed something from God to help their court system. And other than murder... Uh, as you'll see in verse 22, verse 19, verse 26 and 27 of chapter 1, infringements are, are, are uh, chapter 21, infringements are often not eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but they're often financially uh, motivated. And so if someone takes your right, the, the servant thing, they're either to compensate for that loss or set them free. Not the servant takes the master's eye. So it's often a financial thing, a proportional proportionate punishment but it's but it's not um, surprising that people have often taken this literally and particularly if you're on the receiving end of any wrongdoing this sounds like a wonderful thing if someone has done wrong to you doesn't it and that's what the pharisees thought it's an eye for an eye and well that's all there is to it you hit me i hit you back jesus says in matthew chapter 5 that is that is all wrong And that, in fact, this law is there for opportunities for justice and mercy to be done. It was not about getting even or revenge, as Jesus shows us in 1 Peter chapter 2. When they hurled insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. We have court systems today which are good and right and they hand out the consequences for actions when society breaks down. But ultimately we find justice in God. When someone acts unjustly, God will deal justly with them. If they are repentant, God will deal justly with them at the cross through the blood of Christ. If they are unrepentant, God will deal justly with them when he comes again and his wrath is poured out upon them. God is just and he will see justice done. Practical living, when we are in the wrong, we need to to make things right to satisfy justice. And when we have been wronged, it is an opportunity for us to show mercy and not seek revenge. Mercy, not revenge. Justice belongs to the Lord. And if you read through the rest of these, these three chapters that we've been thinking about today, you'll find lots of matters of justice. 
things about that God's people have to be those who seek justice, who seek the truth, who don't get caught up in, uh, in, in the people's courts that um, our world is so uh, caught up in today in things like cancel culture. Don't get, don't get swept away, but seek justice, seek truth. Don't take bribes and all those things uh, that Margaret read out. But I believe that the law helps us to see that we are act, to act justly in our day-to-day lives, that the courts will deal with the consequences of people's actions. But we entrust justice ultimately to God and to use the situation as another opportunity for mercy, following the example of our master Jesus on the cross. Knowing that Christ on the cross took what we deserved. We are to act justly. We are to love mercy and we are to walk faithfully. God's people wants us to be a people uh, to, act, to love mercy, act justly, and walk faithfully. And for the longest time, uh, man presumed that the, the earth stood still and the sun orbited us. When, in fact, as we know, the opposite is very true. And, and someone once said that we need to change our thoughts about our relationship with God in a similar way. That, would, that the whole universe does not revolve around me and you. And God doesn't just hover around waiting for us to be useful at certain points of the day. We are not the center of all things. But God is the fixed point. He has made everything. He sustains everything. And God's law invites us to have that perspective of life and to live light in that truth. Like the first commandment says, God must be central in life and we are to walk faithfully with him. We are to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, minds, and strength. He is to be first. He is to be central. He is the fixed point. He is the center of the universe, not us. And God takes this very seriously in 2220. Whoever, whoever sacrifices to another, uh, any God other than the Lord must be destroyed. Now, there's no death penalty on earth for that offense, uh, this, this side of the new covenant. But here we see just how seriously God wants his people to make sure that he is central in all that we do and walk faithfully with him. It's so easy to forget God. Either because it's convenient for us to forget God because we want to go and sin or forget God due to the busyness of life that work is just 24-7 and always on our minds. It's so easy to forget about God. It's so easy to, to go days and weeks without considering God. But God provides in his law for his people a means to remember him by. As we see in chapter 23, built into the very cycle of life is a reminder of the centrality of God. As we see in the Sabbath in 23.10, six years you are to sow your fields and then harvest your crops, but in the seventh year let, let the land rest. Then the poor among you will may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what's left. Six days you are to work, but on the seventh you do not work, so the animals and workers may be refreshed among you. Be careful to do everything I have said to you. Do not invoke the names of other gods and do not let them be heard on your lips. 
And part of the purpose of this Sabbath was to help them to be faithful as week by week they had that reminder that life is not about work and life is not about laboring, but about God and about the rest that he wants them to enjoy, about the rest that is to come in eternity. It is so easy for work to become all-consuming and to dominate our thoughts and priorities from morning to evening every day. And so God puts into his law a chance to recalibrate our lives so that he can be central and not anything else. And did you notice that when God's people are to keep this Sabbath, it isn't just done for their benefit, but for the community around them? Such an interesting take on the Sabbath, these verses, that, that it, it's about others. It's about loving God and it's about loving others, that the land recovers, that animals are cared for, that the poor are given opportunities to, to eat, that workers are given opportunities to rest and be refreshed. God also gives three celebrations in, in verses 14 to 19. Throughout the year to help God's people to remember his salvation, his provision. To help them to put God at the center and to walk faithfully with him. And I know you're all wondering about the goat and what's all that about. So let's go into that. Not to boil goats in its mother's milk. Well, what's going on here? Well, it was probably a thing that was, that was used for fertility rituals and other religions at the time. And so what it seems a strange end to us makes sense when God calls his people to faithfulness and not to go diving into other religions or rituals, that God is the one who saves, that God is the one who gives rest, that God is the one who provides. There is no need for us to go looking at anything else or anywhere else. He is to be central and we are to walk faithfully with him. And so whoever we are, whatever we are doing in life, God is to be at the center walk faithfully with him. We have, of course, in our time, uh, times together on Sunday, we have our midweek groups. We have our Grace Ladies Bible Study, Men's Breakfast. Hebrews tells us not to give up the habit of meeting together. We may not have the Sabbath as the Israelites had the Sabbath, but we have those patterns of weekly and daily meeting together with one another so that we can recalibrate one another so that God is central and not work and not anything else. And that we can stop each other from going and diving into weird things and other religions and other things um, above God. That's why Hebrew says, don't give up the habit of meeting. These last few things throw up a few questions for us. And questions, am I living a God-centered life? Am I walking faithfully with him? Is this helpfully uh, helping us to ask the question, where is God in the priorities of my life? Am I living my life with me at the center? Helps ask the question, what pattern would be helpful in making sure that I remember him, his salvation, his provision, his rest? 
so that I can walk faithfully with him. You know, we may not be boiling goats, but are there things in life that we are putting our trust in over God for his provision? God wants his people to act justly, to love mercy and to walk faithfully. As we've had this sort of gentle jog through these chapters this morning, we've seen through work and then other chapters talk about property rights and matters of justice and celebrations and food and mercy and the poor and all these different things. I hope you can see that there's no part of life that God doesn't speak into. There is no secular or sacred divide for God's people. But in all the nitty-gritty of life, God calls us to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk faithfully. I know that in justice, we're led back to the cross. In mercy, we are led back to the cross, and in faithfulness, we are led back to the cross. As our motivation, for he has redeemed us for his glory and for the good of others. As those who love their master, we desire to live this out. But he leads us to the cross and all these things because how often do we fall short? How often do we want revenge rather than justice? How often do we put blinkers on so we can't see the vulnerable around us? Or make ourselves busy rather than acting mercifully? How often Are we faithless day to day? Mercifully, God leads us back to the cross, to Christ, who always acts justly, who always loves mercy, who is always faithful, who always holds us fast, who picks us up and shakes off the dust and gets us ready to go again. so that we can be a people who love mercy, act justly, and walk faithfully. Let's pray together. Micah chapter 6 says, Mankind, he has told you what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk faithfully with your God. And Father, I pray that you would help us And living out what you call us to do. You'd help us to recall the mercy and the justice and the faithfulness of you towards us. How vulnerable we were and how you've taken us in. How you've loved us. The dignity and the value and the worth that you give to us and ascribe to us. That you call us your beloved. That you delight in us. May that motivate us then to live out what you, our master, calls us to do. And Father, I also pray that you would forgive us when we fall short. 
when we'd rather revenge rather than justice, when we put our blinkers on to avoid the vulnerable, when we are faithless. Forgive us, we pray. Empower us by your spirit. For Lord, we long to hear those wonderful words of well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. Amen.